Well, this morning we come to the conclusion of a 12-week series that we started called Goodbye God. It's a series that we engaged in to equip the believer and to answer questions to the non-believer concerning many of the issues that are rising today in objection to Christianity. As we've stated in numerous times before, Earlier this year, a report came forth stating that 25% of all Americans, one out of four, now identify themselves as either an agnostic, one who does not know if God exists or if God is even knowable, or an atheist, one who is convinced that there is no God at all, nor will there ever be a God. What was surprising in that report was to discover that two-thirds of that 25% at one time identified themselves with Christianity. So what happened? What caused them to move from an assured position of Christianity to what I would call skepticism? A skeptic is defined as a person inclined to question or to doubt all accepted opinions. What moved them? Well, the report went on to tell us that there were three items specifically that they objected to concerning the Christian faith. The first one was the Bible itself. They did not believe or trust that the Bible was and is the Word of God. Secondly, they no longer believed in the integrity or the authenticity of the church. And thirdly, it appeared to them that the world itself And the intellectualism found within the world has sufficiently explained away Christianity, and therefore our society is no longer in need of it. Over the last 12 weeks, we went through and we looked at these three objections. When it came to the Bible, we demonstrated the evidence behind the Bible, how the Bible is historically accurate. And how, though the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, we have evidence that takes us back to 12 years. 12 years of the actual events that unfold that are recorded for us in the Bible. Then we looked at the supernatural aspect of the Bible to show that God inspired this book. When it came to the church, we redefined what the church is and the purpose of the church. Because here in the United States of America, many Christians had lost the understanding of what is church? What is the purpose of church? And that lack of understanding created a vacuum, a void that was then being filled in by churches trying to reinvent themselves for cultural relevance purposes or simply to be the new thing on the block. And in that reinvention of the church, many problems occurred, which we addressed formally When it came to the objections of the world, the world explaining or attempting to explain Christianity away, we first dealt with the believer and his or her relationship with the world and how Paul has demonstrated and clearly commanded us not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we should not be persuaded by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life that is found in the world that draws us away from Christianity. But then we address the intelligentsia of the world, individuals that have now become prominent in our society who are very brilliant people, 
but their worldview has no room for God within it. And individuals are blindly following these leaders, not questioning some of the premises and some of the presuppositions concerning the worldview that these men and women hold to. And we address that together. So how do we conclude a series such as this? How do we wrap it up as a church together? I found that to be a little bit of a daunting task until I thought very practically. I believe that we have demonstrated throughout these 11 weeks to up until this point that the rejection of Christianity in the world is not an obstacle to us, but an opportunity. The objections of the world, the skepticism of the world is not an obstacle, but is an opportunity. It is an opportunity that I believe God would call us to capitalize upon. And the best way to capitalize upon any opportunity is to be prepared for that opportunity before that opportunity arises. And that's what we are going to try to do this morning. We're going to try to prepare you to take advantage of the opportunity before you as you interact and engage in conversation with those who may claim to be an agnostic, those who may claim to be an atheist. And again, we showed last week the illogical position of atheism and how an atheist cannot be all convinced and sure and absolutely sure that God does not exist. That would move that individual from atheism into the position of agnostic, which then leaves room for discussion. But how do we prepare ourselves for the opportunity that is before us? The best way I can do so is by giving you an example found in the Bible of an individual that was in a similar scenario as you and I are today. And you and I need to observe how he conducted himself and how he capitalized on the opportunity presented before him. And we are going to discover together as a church that God has thoroughly equipped us through his word to take advantage of the opportunities before us. And so I direct your attention to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to be beginning in verse 16. And we are going to be joining Paul in the city of Athens. The city of Athens was once the epicenter of the world. But by the time Paul finds himself there, here in Acts chapter 17, it is on the decline. It is a shadow of what it once was. And the people of Athens still prided themselves on their heritage, their traditions, their history. But there was a foreboding within their hearts and minds knowing that they no longer were the rulers of the world. That the Roman Empire now ruled and Greece was a distant memory. But Paul finds himself there alone waiting for his companions to return. And while he is there in Athens, he discovers something that provokes him in the most inner part of his being. That the city was replete 
with idols. That the city was given over to idols. And a form of religiosity had been created. And Paul, by himself, feeling like a stranger in a strange land, knew that he had the truth and needed to get to work. The provoking within him would not let him remain idle. And so he went to the synagogues and began reasoning with the Jews there. But in a parallel attempt, he also went to the marketplaces, the agora in Greek, the places where people gathered and would speak to anyone who would listen to him as he pointed them to the one true God. The only one there that possibly held to a monotheistic, the idea that there's only one true God feeling alone But he was never alone, for God is with him. You and I may be feeling the same way this morning. We may feel that the nation around us has changed dramatically in the last 30 years, and it has. And we may feel like we are alone, but we're never alone, are we? Today is a demonstration of that as you look around the sanctuary. You're not alone. And even if these people weren't sitting next to you, you'd still know that God is with you and He'll never leave you nor forsake you, regardless of the cultural circumstances that you may be surrounded by. And as we pick up our time with Paul in Athens, we start in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them, that is his companions at Silas and Timothy, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols, just loaded with idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? And others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Aragopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. As one wrote about Athens, he stated that Athens was in a period of decline at this time. Though still recognized as a center of culture and education, the glory of its politics and commerce had long since faded. And it had a famous university and numerous beautiful buildings, but it was not the influential city it once had been. The city was given over to a cultural paganism that was nourished by three things, idolatry, novelty, and philosophy. There are two portions of this example that we have to understand if we are truly going to learn from it. The first portion of this example is the context We have to understand Paul's surrounding to truly appreciate what he is going to say to them. It is his surroundings that provoke him to say the things in which he says. 
of course, dictated and led by the Spirit of God within him. But to understand the context will allow us then to truly understand the second portion of our example, which is the content, that in which Paul actually said. Again, understanding Athens, we must understand the idolatry within it. Some believe that there were over 300 statues and maybe 150 different temples of varying sizes to different pagan gods. Of course, all of them created at the hand of man. They were just overwhelmed with the number of pagan gods there in Athens. It had been said about Athens that one would jest that it is easier to find a god in Athens than a man himself. Just loaded with pagan gods. But Athens was also known for a place of novelty. And what I mean by that is this. It was a place where trends were still being set. Even though they were no longer a leader in the political uh, realm and Caesar ruled from Rome, they were still a trendsetter. And people went to Athens to find the new thing, the new thing that would allow them to continue in their self-identity, their self-assurance, and help them discover their self-worth. Sounds like America today, huh? We are loaded with idols, but we are less genuine about it than they were. We may not have statues and temples, but we have cars, homes, and other things that often become idols to us and get in the way of our embrace of God, distract us from our full devotion to Him. An idol can take many different forms, and we must not be naive to that fact. Anything that would distract us or challenge our hearts, mind, soul, spirit, and strength for its affection is an idol before God. Why do I say that? Because God has called us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When it comes to novelties, our society and our culture is built upon novelty. How many people have to have the new thing when it comes out? How many people do you know that derive their identity not by who they are and what they do and what they contribute to the society collectively, but by the material possessions in which they own? They have the new fashion and they derive their self-worth from it. They have the new smartphone that says, hey, I'm someone. And at the cost of some of these new smartphones, it also says, hey, I'm broke. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. We have to have certain brand of cars, certain brands of clothes. We have to have the something, the new thing. And as soon as that new thing is released, we have to have the new thing, the novelty, where we derive our identity from in many cases. But they were also known for their philosophy. One wrote about the novelty of the city of Athens, and I read it to you because I think it's very applicable to what we are saying today. Listen to these words. As for novelty, it was the chief pursuit of both the citizens and the visitors there in Athens. Their leisure time was spent telling or hearing of something new. As Eric Hoffer once wrote, the fear of becoming a has-been keeps many people from becoming anything. 
The person who chases the new and ignores the old soon discovers that he has no deep roots to nourish his life. He also discovers that nothing really is new. It's just that our memories are poor. I love that. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Nothing at all. But also it was known for philosophy, the third of its characteristics. The city was also devoted to philosophy, as one scholar wrote. When you think of Greece, you think automatically of Socrates and Aristotle and a host of other thinkers whose works are still read and studied today. A newspaper columnist once wrote, and he defined philosophy as an unintelligible answer to an insolvable problem. But the Greeks would not have agreed with him. They would have followed Aristotle, who called philosophy the science which considers truth. We are inundated with philosophies that have derived here in our nation. We talked about one of those philosophies during our Goodbye series, and that is the philosophy of pragmatism and how that's affected our thinking in our society today. So they were known for their idols, they were known for their novelties, and they were known for their philosophy. And in the midst of it all, we find Paul alone. And we find him alone, and in that moment of pause, as he is walking through the streets of Athens, he discovers the plethora of pagan gods before him. And then there's that word, he was provoked. He was provoked within his spirit, verse 16. He was burdened. He was upset. That's what this means. He couldn't stay silent. He needed to get to work regardless of the fact that he was alone. He wasn't going to wait for Timothy. He wasn't going to wait for Silas. This needed to be addressed right here at this moment. And he began. And he began in the synagogues where he normally started. But at the same time, he took a parallel course, went into the marketplaces, and whoever was there... Paul would speak to them about Jesus Christ. When it talks about reasoning, it means to teach publicly, having a discourse, presenting an intelligent argument, using our intelligence, using words to discuss or to argue, and so forth. We need to be prepared as believers in two ways, right from the beginning. We need to be ready in season and out of season when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. And we need to be prepared intellectually to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We need to be ready. Paul was ready. Paul was provoked within himself. And he began to debate. He began to argue. He began to stand and pour forth rhetoric that would allow him to persuade the people to reconsider their positions. And that is key if we are going to take advantage of the opportunities presented before us as we engage with our skeptical friends and family members or our co-workers. We need to be prepared for the opportunity and we need to engage with them intelligently and we need to be able to use persuasion dismantling their worldview before them, allowing to see the insufficiencies of it, and then beginning to build 
within them the understanding of what a biblical worldview entails, to let them wrestle with the idea of the existence of God. And that's what Paul did here. And as he was there in the marketplace, undoubtedly he gained people's attention. Paul was a brilliant man. And filled with the Holy Spirit, you had someone that you really contended with. Though not much of physical stature, he was older in age, and yet people could not, could not withstand and resist his persuasion. And though he didn't use articulate words, and he never claimed to be a great orator, he allowed the profound simplicity of the cross itself in the power of the Holy Spirit to confound the wisdom of the world. But he was approached by two groups of people. Undoubtedly, Paul gained their attention here in verse 18. And they are listed for us. They are called philosophers, but of two different schoolings or camps. The Epicureans and the Stoics. They also conversed with him. That is, they went back and forth. Uh, trading jabs, trading barbs, meaning they would say something. Paul would respond and they would respond in kind and refute and rebut each other's positions. And they went back and forth to almost to a place of confusion and curiosity where their confusion was the, led to their curiosity, which we'll talk about in a moment. But to understand the mindset of these two groups of people is, I think, imperative to understand the context of the content. Because much of the philosophy and the mindset of people today in our culture trace back to Epicurean thinking, trace back to Stoic thinking. We don't know that today because we're not schooled in the Greek philosophers anymore at a high school level. But if we were, if we were to be challenged in our upper, class, uh, upper grades, such as college, graduate school, etc., we would realize that much of our thinking parallels these two positions. When it comes to the Epicureans, one wrote about them. We today associate the word Epicurean with the pursuit of pleasure and the love of fine living, especially fine foods. But the Epicurean philosophy involved much more than that. In one sense, the founder of the Epicureans was an existentialist in that he sought truth by means, listen to this, of personal experience and not through reasoning. He sought truth through personal experience and not through reasoning. Truth today in our culture, in our society, is derived by personal experience. And we have truly advanced the idea of, don't confuse me by the facts, haven't we? It is a huge element of pragmatism. But this might surprise you also that the Epicureans were materialists. Not that that's a problem here in the United States. And also, they were atheists. And their goal in life was simply to live for pleasure. As we would say, living for the weekends. Or what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, etc. Individuals living for pleasure. To some, pleasure meant that which was grossly physical, but to others it meant a life of refined serenity 
free from pain and anxiety. The true Epicurean avoided all extremes and sought to enjoy life by keeping things in balance. But pleasure was still his or her number one goal. A little insight to the Epicurean thinking. And how much we see of that playing out in our society today. People living for pleasure. But people still haven't learned that pleasure is so short-lived, isn't it? And as soon as you have that moment of pleasure, it's almost like you just can't wait to have the next one, but the next one is so far in the distance that it's hard to wait for it. I consider it this way. And I'm guilty of this myself. I've gone to the Magic Kingdom, Disney World, which is supposed to be the happiest place in the world, but all I do is see kids crying when I go there. And I have been one of those who gets to the ride of my choice and sees that it's only a 120-minute wait, and I'm glad for it. And I wait two hours for a ride that lasts five minutes at most. But we've all been there. And that's the way pleasure is. It's far and few between. But that's what the Epicureans live for. That's what many are living for today in the United States of America. We do what we do for our personal enjoyment, our free time, our leisure time, etc. That's why we work the way we do, so we can spend those finances bolstering our leisure time. But when it came to the Stoics, unlike the Epicureans, they did believe in a world god. They were pantheists in nature. And listen to what they emphasized. I'll just read it for you quickly. The Stoics rejected the idolatry of pagan worship and taught that there was one world god. But they were merely pantheists. And their emphasis was on personal discipline and self-control. Pleasure was not good. Pain was not evil to them. And most important thing of life was to follow one's reason and to be self-sufficient, unmoved by inner feelings or outward circumstances. Of course, such a philosophy only fanned the flames of pride and taught men that they did not need the help of God. It is interesting that the first two leaders of the Stoic school of thinking committed suicide. That's interesting. Logic and reason, most aptly depicted in a character that we are all familiar with, I'm sure his name is Spock, from the series Star Trek. Feelings had no, no place within his living. Just reason, fact, and intellectualism. As one wrote, he said, the Epicureans enjoyed life. And the Stoics said that they simply endured life. But it remained for Paul to explain how they could enter into life through faith in God's risen Son. So in his conversation with these two groups, they concluded from one of the groups that he was a mere babbler. And it means that they felt that his presentation and his thinking and his ideas were simply handpicked from a variety of things that already existed. It wasn't new thinking per se, it was just old thinking rehashed, reassembled, and represented. Revisionism, reinvention found within his lecture, his presentation. 
As they expressed their differing opinion, they could not withstand Paul. And that lack and that resistance, I should say, that Paul demonstrated caused them further curiosity. To the point that they actually seized him. For it was illegal to bring about some new thinking without it being vetted by someone else. What does that sound like today? Think of our higher education today and academia. It's hard to think outside the box, isn't it? And still be accepted by your peers. Individuals who want to argue for intelligent design or the fact that things were created are now losing their uh, tenure because it doesn't conform to the society's understanding of the evolutionary process that brought about all things. And so they brought him to the Aragopagus. He preached Jesus to them here in verse 18, if you read with me. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed. That says they went back and forth with him. And when they couldn't resist him and when he, they couldn't refute him or they couldn't cause him to relent, they mocked him. What does this babbler wish to say? Undoubtedly, Paul was, wasn't recognized as growing up in any of the school of thoughts there in Athens. He seemed like a rogue agent. And others said he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and that's a very eloquent way of saying the gospel of Jesus. And in verse 19, and they took him by force. They seized him and brought him to the Aragopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. It's an inquiry. He's on trial. Again, it was illegal. And Aristotle himself, 50 years earlier, 100 years earlier, I should say, was killed for this purpose of bringing new thinking about that wasn't approved. And as he comes to the Aragopagus, we find then Paul on the center stage. They want to know what this new teaching is that, they, that he is presenting. In verse 20, For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. There's the novelty aspect. So we come to verse 22. After discovering the context, now we are going to look at the content. Paul being given this opportunity, what did he actually say to them? And how can we learn from him? By the points of information that he presented concerning God. I believe that the points that he used were masterfully assembled by the Holy Spirit and Paul's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But allowing the culture and his audience to dictate the manner in which he approached them. Which shows me that Paul truly believed that he was trying to become all things to all men that he may reach some for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He took an opportunity that he had and he capitalized upon it. As we see, the context is very similar to the context that we have today in many, many ways. Now I believe we can learn from the content of what Paul says to allow us to speak to our skeptical friends, our skeptical family members, our skeptical co-workers, reasonably and intelligently. 
So as Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, verse 22, he said to them, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, seeking after spiritual. That's what that word really means. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he is in need of anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live. And on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or an imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There are four points that Paul makes that we are going to quickly look at. We find this in the content now of his message. As Paul now is given center stage, he now capitalizes on the opportunity before us. And he uses a segue that I think is brilliant. In his observation of the city and the society around him, he found that there was a plethora of idols there created. And then he noticed that there was a statue that was labeled to the unknown God. For the Athenians, if nothing else, were careful not to offend a God that they may not know exists or not. In fact, there's a little story behind this. We've often been approaching this chapter as if that there was only one statue to an unknown God, but there more likely was many statues to many unknown gods. Let me give you an example from history. This is interesting. Right before the decline of Athens, there was a great plague that moved through it. And the reaction of the people was to try to find and to appease the God in whom they felt they had provoked and that brought about the plague. So they went to each of the pagan gods and gave the necessary offerings to each one, the necessary service to each one, in hopes that the plague would subside. But it had not. So they then thought that maybe that there was a God that they were unfamiliar with. So an individual brought a herd of sheep up to the hill of the Aragopagus and let the sheep go. This was his divining rod of trying to determine where gods were and who gods were. And this is what he did. As the sheep then spread throughout the city, wherever the sheep went, 
to whatever statue they went, they would then be slaughtered and sacrificed to that statue. But many of them laid down around none of the pagan statues that already existed. So what did they do? They created pagan statues to unknown gods and then slaughtered the sheep to those gods. That was their way of rectifying the problem. And in actuality, the plague subsided after doing so. Now, if this was still in the thinking of the people, the knowledge of their history, Paul, seeing one of these statues to one of these unknown gods, he then capitalizes on this opportunity. And not that they were worshiping this unknown god properly, because they were ignorant of who this unknown God is. And though there may have been a plethora of statutes to an unknown God, Paul always speaks in the singular, bringing him back to a monotheistic understanding of who God is, meaning that there is only one true God. And so he says to all of them, very, very casually, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious, meaning you are seeking the spirits. Today we don't use the word religious much in our society anymore, but the word I do here is, I'm not religious necessarily, but I'm spiritual. That has a plethora of different definitions, by the way. And they usually say, I worship God as I choose to worship God. Then you ask them who that God is. It's a God that they have formulated. They may not have made him with their hands or her with their hands, but they have certainly carved an image for themselves in their mind. And then I ask, what do you do to serve that God? Well, I worship God in my own way. That means I do very little, if anything at all. And I just call upon him and her when I'm really in need. And many Christians, unfortunately, have taken that exact same approach to our God. They're not looking to live for him day by day to live in obedience to him. But when they're in need, they cry out to him. And if Paul says, it's this unknown God that I'd like to explain to you. Now, they would have been all ears at this moment. Because now Paul is filling in the blanks to a question that they have. Because again, in that culture, they were constantly seeking to appease the pagan gods in which they had because they didn't want anything bad to happen. That's what they lived. They lived under an element of fear consistently. So tell us about this unknown God that we may appease him as we do the others so nothing bad happens. And Paul begins. He talks about the greatness of God. He shows that God is our creator. He talks about the goodness of God, showing that God is our provider. He then talks about the government of God, that God is the ruler. And then he talks about the grace of God, as God is our Savior. Many ask me, how do I begin with my friends and to sharing with them Jesus Christ? Well, begin at the beginning. Today, people need to be reminded of the fact that God has created all things. And though we believe and are told that evolution has gripped the minds and the hearts of many people, and that is true certainly in academia, the populace, though, is questioning that. In fact, in the last three conversations I've had with non-believers, they have fully rejected Darwinism altogether, which leads a great open door for the presentation of the truth. 
that God created all things, beginning with his word, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's where it all starts. Everything derived from God. And through that creation, God may be known in a general way. As Paul wrote, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so we are without excuse. As John Stott wrote, he said, In explaining God to them, Paul started at the beginning. God is the creator, and we are his creation. This view of the world is very different from either the Epicureans' emphasis, listen to this, on a chance combination of atoms or the virtual pantheism of the Stoics. The Epicureans believed everything derived from chance, just like the evolutionist does. It's not a new concept. And the Stoics believe that God is in everything and is everything. And in their pantheistic worldview, Paul is saying, no, God is God and he created all things. A universal truth of Christianity that cannot be denied, Old and New Testament. That God is the creator of all things. Today, again, the origins of all things is so necessary for us to remind people of today. Understand this. Why are we shocked when people act like animals when we've told them from the beginning that they were derived from animals? Let's think about it. You want to bring self-dignity and self-worth to an individual. Tell them they've been created by a holy God and understand their identity in the perspective of His goodness. In Acts 17.25, Paul then went on to tell us about this God who's created all things. He says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he has need of anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is sufficient. He is in need of nothing from man, meaning nothing is added or taken away concerning God's character by man himself. Now this would have been in stark contrast to them who believed that their service unto their gods validated their gods. Greek mythology held to this fact, that the more people believed in a certain deity, the more powerful that deity was. If no one believed in that deity, the deity was no more. People believe that today, that if we just diminish people's belief in Christianity, Christianity is going to disappear. That God is just simply going to go away, and we've ultimately then said goodbye to God. That's not true, and Paul's making that argument here. He's in no need of man in any way. As one wrote very clearly, men may pride themselves in serving God, but it is God who serves man. If God is God, then he is self-sufficient and needs nothing. And what I mean by serves, it means who benefits who. He is self-sufficient and is in need of nothing that man can supply for him. Not only do temples not contain God, But the service in the temples add nothing to God. In two brief statements, Paul completely wiped out the entire religious system of the Greeks. In two statements. That's the Holy Spirit at work. When it comes to the goodness of God, think of James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. 
And even in Matthew, Jesus himself said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Or as Paul wrote in Romans 2.4, he said, Or do not presume the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, drawing these individuals into the goodness of God. As many believe today that if we just abandon God well enough, he will go away, that is not true. And understand that it's not us who seeks God, it is God who seeks us and pursues us. It is God who initiated all things by sending His only begotten Son. Not only do they know that God is great and as He is Creator, they need to know His goodness, that He is not in need of anything from us, but desires our love and affection freely given to Him. As Paul went on then to say, concerning the government of God, that He is the ruler of all things, verses 26 through 29, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way, grope their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. They needed to know that God was involved in their lives. The Greeks felt that their gods were indifferent at any time their gods did intercede. It was usually to cause trouble and to make difficulties arise or to test the individuals to see if the individual was loyal or not. But as ruler, God ruler, it is God who sees all things and oversees all things, and is sovereign in all things. It is God who orchestrates and determines periods of time that nations will rise, nations will fall, dwellings, places of where nations shall exist. It is all God who brings about these things. God is actively involved in His creation. That's what Paul is saying here. The Greeks felt that they were a special culture, super to all other cultures, because they were uniquely created out of the ground of Greece itself. Paul's saying, no, that's not true. We all came from one person. If anyone tells you that Paul or any other individual did not believe in a literal Adam, here it is amply demonstrated that he believed that we all came from one person. No, you're not unique. You're just like everybody else. Created in the image of God. That's what he is getting to. In verse 29, he brings that then to a head. Being then the offsprings of God, we ought not to think of the divine being like gold or silver, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. For the Greeks, the gods in whom they worshipped were indifferent to the affairs of men. If they had any interaction, it was often to cause difficulties and great trials. The Greek mind was that they felt that they were able to set their own personal destiny. That if there was a God, he was merely a deist and he had no interaction in man's life. Today we sum it up this way. Today everybody wants to escape the reality of what is called a meta-narrative. 
that there is something more to our thinking, there is something more to our world than what we just see around us. And people reject that idea because they do not want to be subjected to that idea. And Paul's saying there is a great meta narrative, and that meta narrative is God. It is He who places nations, it is He who rises up people, it is He who does these things. He is sovereign over all. And just as God brought Greece to a zenith at one time, you now understand the decline that you are experiencing is also perpetrated by the hand of God. This would have stymied the thinking of people. It stymies the people's thinking today when we tell them that there is something greater than themselves in the world. Paul quoting their own poets, allowing them to see from their own poetry that they believe that all things derive from one initial starting point. And as one wrote, he said, this led to Paul's logical conclusion. God made us in his image, so it is foolish for us to make gods in our own images. Greek religion was nothing but a manufacturer and a worship of gods who were patterned after men and who acted like men. Paul not only showed the folly of their temples and the folly of their temple rituals, but also the folly of their personal and individual adaptation and adoption of idolatry. Now all of this is leading to a point, and it's found in verse 30. Look with me. The times of the ignorance God overlooked. The reason he did not pour out his wrath upon you was because of his grace. That's what Paul is saying here. But now, meaning that a turning point has taken place, something has occurred. Now he commands that all people everywhere repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given the assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the key point. The prosperity that you enjoyed, the prominence that you enjoyed in the world at one time was a demonstration of God's grace. But now that Christ has come, it is time to get right with God. He did not overlook these things in the sense that he dismissed them, They were still wrong before him, but in his grace he was long-suffering, he was patient with them, he allowed them to continue until this time. And now he is bringing the gospel to them in the person of Paul, that they may repent. People need to be reminded of this. Because as we deliver the gospel to people and talk about the issue of sin, many believe that their sin in some way is insufficient or God doesn't really care about it because God hasn't struck me dead yet. God hasn't, you know, chastened me. He hasn't judged me. He hasn't, you know, brought me to nothing because of my sin. Why should I be concerned with it? Oh, what you're misinterpreting is the long-suffering and the grace of God. That's what you're misinterpreting. But now is the time to repent. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to get right with God. Because God will judge the entire world through one person, the person of Jesus Christ, and He validated that. He indicated that through the resurrection Jesus rising on the third day demonstrated to the whole world that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And that's what we need to get them to. Talk about creation. 
Talk about the goodness of God. Talk about the sovereignty of God. Talk about the grace of God and get them to Jesus Christ. Because that's the question. What are you going to do with Jesus? That's the point you want to get your skeptical friends to. If you want, and for a side note for your own personal study, because time is growing short this morning, please notice how Paul worked in line with the direction of the Holy Spirit found in John 16, 4 through 15. It's a passage of Scripture that you need to memorize if you're going to be effective in your communication of the gospel. And that being said, we conclude by seeing their reaction found here in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom was Dionys, the Aragopagite, and the woman named Demarius, and others with them. Three reactions that we can anticipate from our skeptical friends. One, we're going to be mocked. We're going to be laughed at by our secular friends. We are going to be mocked by them. We are going to be ridiculed by them. We are to expect that. Others are found in that second group. Some are going to procrastinate. In fact, history tells us that there was a case brought to the Aragopagus, and they didn't want to decide on the case, so they stated at the end of the, the uh, argument, we're going to hear about this again at another time. You know how long they waited? 23 years. That's procrastination. Why do today what I can put off until tomorrow? And then others believed. And this is usually the three reactions that we are going to get from our friends. And we need to consider this as we approach that and not grow discouraged when we are mocked, not grow discouraged when people procrastinate, but rejoice in those times that people respond positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are seven things I'd like to leave you with this morning. Seven points that I find in our text. Principles that we can take and adopt in our own lives to reach this generation. And the first principle is this, in reaching our generation. Number one, we must have a burden for the people we are speaking to. And we must have a burden if we are going to reach our culture. Let me ask you a question. I know we're running out of time, but do you care anymore? Do you care about your, your family members, your friends, your co-workers who do not know Jesus Christ? Does it bother you that their eternity hangs in a balance? They're hanging by a thread over an eternity separated from God. Does it even matter to you anymore? Number one, we must be burdened. Number two, to reach the culture in which we live, we must go to where the people are. That's so important. We can't ask them to come to where we are. We need to go where they are. Just like Paul did. He went to the Angora, where the marketplace. That's where the people were. That's where he went. Number three, to reach our culture, we must first arouse interest in our listeners. Meaning, we have to provoke their thinking. We need to give them a moment of pause to reconsider the soundbite that they have adopted to be true. And then we need to interject and provoke them to thinking. Number four, we need to be culturally relevant. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We need to be answering the right questions. Christians today are answering questions that no one's asking. We need to know the questions the world is asking and then answer them accordingly. Number five, 
To reach our culture, we must preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen. There's a place for relating. There's a place for being understandable. There's a place for building a bridge. But don't miss the point. We must preach Jesus Christ and Him risen. And that leads to number six. We need to preach the whole gospel. What do I mean by that? We cannot just give them the good news. We need to give them the bad news first of their dilemma before God, their desperate dilemma before God, and then we need to follow it with the good news. Every other day I get a sales call to my house. I I can almost set my clock by it. It is so frequent. Asking me if I want new siding and gutters for my home. I live in a condo. I have no need of those things. So even though they're giving me a great deal and a great price, I could care less because I don't need those things. We have to tell people why they need Jesus and then tell them how they can meet Jesus. And finally, my seventh point. After preaching, Paul trusted God for the results. He trusted God to do the work. It is God who opens the eyes. It is God who opens the heart. It is God who releases the blinders that are on the individual's who are blinded by the ruler of this world. 